something to say. Hello everyone, how are you doing today? My name is Charlie, you might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, and I've been editing my book all week. Well, one of the books that I have in the hopper needing editing right now. I've been working on the edits for Crucify My Love, which is the first book in the Mask of the Gods series, which will be coming out next year. And I've been thinking a lot about how to find the right words and making sure that the words that I am using are the right words. And I thought I should take some time and talk about that today. I haven't really talked about writing as much as I want on this podcast because, you know, I don't want it to just be a writing podcast, you know, but you know, I am a writer and that's kind of what I do all day. So First of all, and this is not a paid endorsement. I know we have sponsors on the show now, but this is not one of them. Um, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I've been using some software called Pro Writing Aids to Pro Writing Aid to help with the editing process. This is not the first book that I've used it on. I've I actually used it for uh, Labyrinth of Souls as well. And I just wanted to start by saying, if you are currently in the process of editing and you're looking for some help on things, this is some of the better software that I've ever found to help with this. It won't replace having somebody actually sit down and read the book with you and help you go through it and do some of you know the more structural things. But it has a way of looking at the text that is different and it will point out things for example like sticky sentences places where the story kind of bogs down a little bit because of the language that's used that you might want to spruce it up a little bit and fix it it does what it it gives each sentence a readability score and while i wouldn't rely on that to say you know if a sentence has a high readability you know, as a, isn't passing the test that it's necessarily a sentence that you don't want to have in your story. It does highlight store, you know, certain sentences that may be difficult for other people to read and kind of draws your attention to them so that you know what to look at. It looks for how often you use words in your story and will highlight if, you know, like I do from time to time and you know this, especially on the podcast, because I have this problem too, where I kind of fixate on a word and use it way too much. And it will highlight them and let you see them. It will show you places where the language could be simplified and actually recommends simplifications. Again, depending on the story, depending on your personal use, that may not be the most helpful. It highlights adverbs for you. It shows you when you're using passive voice and that's really helpful. It searches for hidden verbs. It does a lot of things that you kind of want an editing suite to do. And it connects with just about everything. I use it with Scrivener, which is how I personally write. And it's great. It just loads up the Scrivener file. I can edit right there. It saves it back to the Scrivener file. 
and I can do my editing in there. I really enjoy using it, and I wanted to start just by giving them a plug because they're awesome, and they make my life a lot easier, and I, I kind of love it. And <laughs> if you are currently editing something, definitely check it out. But, you know, given the story that I'm currently working on, it's a very fine line between writing an action story, a fantasy story, and a romance with a lot of creepy, dark horror elements added into it. And that has been something that I've really been playing around with language on and struggling to find the right language to use. And how I, you know, when you're writing kind of mashup fiction like I do, it can be really tricky to figure out, okay, in this scene, is this supposed to be exciting or is this supposed to be bringing about nerves? You know what I'm saying? Like, is this a scene that should lend itself more to the horror elements or should they be getting psyched up for something? And it's really a tricksy thing to accomplish. You know, for me, you know, I, I don't really write romance novels. I, I say that and I get taken to task for that all the time. The In a genre romance, the characters must be together at the end. And for previous books that I have written that people have said, no, no, they're actually a romance story. They may have significant romance plots in them, but they are not a romance novel because in the end, the characters are not together. And since the characters are not together at the end, it technically isn't a romance story. And I'm, I'm sorry, that's just some baggage from, you know, previous work that I've done. But, you know, working on this story has been hard because, you know, I want their relationship to be believable. And I want the relationship between all the characters to be believable. And it is remarkable how much you start questioning your own life when you're writing things like that, because you start asking yourself, well, how do I know, how, how did my relationship start? How do relationships I see between other people go? How, how can you start seeing those little hints that people are starting to care about each other and whatnot? And it really makes you introspective as well as, you know, just kind of questioning everything that you know about human relationships. And I don't know, it's been a really weird experience because I know some very soppy ways to show people falling in love. I know some very cliche ways to show people falling in love. Like I, I've the, one of the scenes that I edited today, I really sat back and thought to myself, is that a meat cute? Did I actually give them a meat cute? I don't, think it qualifies under the trope of the meat cute but some people depending on what they consider to be the meat cute might think that it is and I don't want that in the book and this is why the more you know about writing one yes the better your writing will actually be but the more you start questioning every decision that you make and every decision that could be made in the construction of the story and in the manufacturing of it. So it's, it's really been a trick to figure out what I'm going to do 
on this, that, and the other issue. And I don't know. I, I just kind of wanted to talk about it because you don't realize how many subtle little things you do in your day until you're trying to make sure that you're capturing those things in another, in a story. And, you know, it's something that I didn't think about when I was writing the book because I just wrote it. And the last, you know, the first two books in the series were like that. I just wrote them. And now that I'm in the editing and I'm making sure that, you know, the characterization is right. And, you know, the relationship is developing in a way that makes sense. I find myself really questioning a lot of things. So one of the most important pieces of advice I can give any writer creator out there who's trying to tell a real story. And I write like crazy fantasy stories with monsters and magic. So bear that in mind when I'm saying this, because when I say a real story, I mean an emotionally grounded story an emotion, you know, a story that resonates with people in a real way. It's important to keep yourself reminded that there's a difference between verisimilitude and reality. And for me, I think this is something that gets missed by some people. Like when we look at the uh, DC cinematic movies, like they wanted to do grim dark, but the one thing that they neglected to do was give it any sense of verisimilitude. It, it, what does that word mean? It means simulation of reality. Because in crafting fiction, that's actually what we're trying to do. We're not trying to make it like it would be in the real world. If stories were real, because I hear this from people, especially when they find out I'm a fantasy writer and they say, why don't you write things that are real? Nobody writes things that are real. Real life is boring. Real life is I got up, I had breakfast, I went to the bathroom, I had something to drink, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. It's boring, it's repetitious, it has a lot of elements that you really don't want to read in a story, and nobody actually wants that. We use that term real but that we're not actually trying to replicate reality or real life. We're actually seeking this concept of verisimilitude, that it simulates reality, that it feels real, that it has an emotional truth and a grounding to it. So when you read something like the Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion, which are, you know, fantastical stories with creatures made of fire and smoke and dragons and giant spiders and vampires and werewolves. And you didn't know there were vampires and werewolves in Tolkien's world. Did you read, read the Silmarillion? It's amazing. Um, people that get turned into wolves and, you know, magical gems that glow brighter than the sun and all this other stuff. The way you do that is tying it to real emotion. Like the story of Baron and Lothian could really just wash over you, but there's something about the relationship between those two characters that grounds it, that makes it feel real, that makes it work, and makes us like the story. You know, when I read Sovereign, for example, by April Daniels, this is a superhero story, and it has all the things that you expect in superhero stories. It has people who wear outlandish costumes, who have superpowers, who can do amazing things outside the realm of ordinary life. 
But when I met Danny, Danny was coming from an emotional place that I have lived in for 42 years. And so I immediately connected with her and felt a relationship, a kinship with this character that when all of the superpower stuff kicked in and everything went crazy, I, I was along for the ride because her relationship with Grey Witch and the relationship with all of the other characters and the elements of the story were grounded in that basic emotional reality. Whether people in real life would react that way. I mean, for goodness sakes, if I was Danny and a dying superhero collapsed next to me and suddenly I found my body transformed into it's my own personal ideal of what it should look like and be, I, I would probably run screaming like it would, it would terrify me. It would horrify me and it would give me a rush and I would feel all of these things, but I will never have to deal with that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if I would have reacted the same way Danny did, but Danny's reaction was such genuine surprise and shock. And then thinking about how her parents were going to react to this and how she was going to explain it to them and how she was going to write this off so that it was okay and how she could sneak back into her house without them knowing because eventually they're going to find out but she wants to just enjoy it for as long as she can before they find out there, there's an emotional truth there that helps me connect with that character and with those elements so that i can get through the story and that's what i'm talking about when i'm saying that something needs to be true because it's the little things that make emotional reactions valid and making sure that they come from the character and not necessarily what the audience would expect the character's reaction to be. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot because, you know, I think a lot of people, especially when they meet Shinobu for the first time are going to be thinking to themselves, Oh, I know this character. I've seen this character in other media. Um, just because he's a healer and they think they know what somebody with healing powers is like. I think the opening scene should disabuse them of a lot of those preconceived notions, but you know, I, there's going to be a lot of baggage that comes with him and, you know, trying to make sure people understand him as a character on his own terms is very important to me. It's time for the break, so we're going to go hear a word from our sponsor, and I'll be right back. And we're back. Hi. Okay, so like, okay, so before the break, I was talking about, you know, thinking about the emotional baggage and the baggage that people are going to be bringing to my own fiction worlds. And some of that I can use to my advantage. So, for example, when I was just trying to figure out how I wanted to describe magic in the setting, I decided to use the word ether because it's something that has been around for a very long time. And for a lot of fantasy readers, I'm not going to have to explain it. I will have to explain how it works in my setting and in my world. And 
fit that in in a way that's not overly, you know, cumbersome to the reader, but it's a word and an idea that people already have some familiar familiarity with. So words like that are some of the words that I am talking about. But one of the other things that this story has really brought to mind for me is, you know, my love of wuxia and xinxia fiction and the fact that, you know, I really wanted to use the 18 weapons in this setting and then realizing that many people might not know what they are and having to cope with that. And that's something that, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people about and for some weapons, I will definitely have to explain them a bit more than others. Some of the more, you know, unusual ones that people may not be familiar with, like the wind and fire rings and the, the iron whip. But beyond that, you know, people know what a war hammer is. People know what a sword is. And, you know, I can make some description to be specific about which blade that I'm using. But, you know, I don't want to overladen the story with jargon. Because that, that's something that I discovered very early on in my career is something that can kill a book. You know, my first book series, uh, Liquid Sky, it has a lot of jargon in it because that's something that I love in a you know fantasy and a sci-fi setting. And I grew up reading books that had appendixes in the back of them so that you could quickly look up the words that were in them. And I enjoyed that. And... I, I did discover that, you know, there are some out there who like that as well and others who really, really don't. So over the years, I've learned to temper that instinct in myself and try to use language that is more accessible for more people. But those were my first books and I was learning. And, you know, it, it's a, it is a process. If you are a writer... You know, you're going to be coming from a place where you're incorporating a lot of elements from stories that you love and settings that you love and genres that you love into your fiction. And it's the onus is on us to realize what is essential to the genre to make it fit if we're trying to do that, but also what requires explanation to those who are unfamiliar with those elements and that's that's a tricky path to walk down and it's true to no matter what genre we're working on there are romance novels out there that are set in you know various um professions that you probably have to consider how much of that profession does the audience need to understand to understand the character's role in her company or his company, depending on, you know, the story. That That's there, regard, irregardless, no, regardless of what um, genre we're writing in. It's something that we're going to have to do and deal with no matter what. But, you know, I've kind of defaulted to not taking anything for granted, especially when I don't know if I'm going to be using these words in a way that you know people are familiar with or expecting to see 
you know, I, I do my best to tell the stories that I think people would enjoy. And, you know, I really like the mix of elements myself. So, you know, I'm writing for myself as my primary audience. The problem is, you know, I've been reading these kinds of books and watching these kinds of movies and television series and what have you for so long that there are a lot of things that I take for granted and I can't let myself do that if I want my fiction to be relevant to others and I in some ways like this is the difference between writing fan fiction and writing your own fiction and again, one of those things that I think we can go back to the DC movies and see that those are really like Zack Snyder fanfics of DC characters. Because there are things that we kind of need explaining about as an audience because, yes, he's right in assuming everybody knows who Batman is. And he gives us the brief basic overview of, you know, parents died, fell in caves, saw bats, bats scary. Okay, dress as a bat and deal and fight with crime, fight crime. Yeah, those are the basic elements of every Batman. But I don't think anybody would say that the Adam West 1960s Batman, the Tim Burton 1980s Batman, and the Christopher Nolan 2000s Batman is the same Batman. And they require a bit of explanation so that you can understand which Batman you're getting. Because because one of the benefits of writing fan fiction, especially when you're getting started, is you can focus on characterization and voice and dialogue and action and not have to worry about backstory because you just have to say, oh, I'm writing about this character in this setting. You don't have to create the setting. You don't have to create the characters. People already know them. And in a lot of ways, that's the problem with the DCEU movies. He just assumes that we know these people. And I think one of the things that made the Wonder Woman movie so good, it didn't take for granted that we knew who Wonder Woman was because... And I can't believe I'm saying this. Every time I say this, it just sounds alien, foreign, and like not a real sentence that should be said. But, you know, it was the first time we'd had a big budget, well, any Wonder Woman movie ever. Like she got a TV series with Linda Hamilton that was kind of, you know, campy awesome if you're into that sort of thing, but you know, she'd never had a movie before. So they didn't take for granted that people knew who Wonder Woman was. So the people who did the Wonder Woman movie, they let you get to know Diana and not just Diana Prince, but their Diana Prince. How are they doing her? What is their Themyscira like? What is their definition of man's world? What is her mission. Why is she there? What is she there to do? We get to learn that all while Diana is learning it. And thus we feel like we know Wonder Woman and she's a character that a lot of people love and why that movie was successful. Now you take that and you look at a movie like Man of Steel, which should have done that with Superman, but it just assumes that we know who Superman is. It just assumes 
But the thing is, yeah, I know who Superman is. I know various Supermen from the comics. I know the Steve Reeves Superman. I know the Christopher Reeves Superman. I know the Superman from the animated Justice League series, who was very similar to, but kind of distinct from, the animated Superman. I know the Superman from Lois and Clark. I have a bit of familiarity with the Superman from Smallville. But these are all different characters with different wants and dreams and ambitions and that he didn't specify which Superman we were getting. And in fact, we weren't getting any of those. We were getting Zack Snyder's Superman. But since he didn't take the time to explain to us who Kal-El was, who Jor-El was, one of the bigger problems of the film is that so much relies on you feeling that Jor-El is coming from maybe the right place because he really is the deus ex machina of the movie. I mean, he is the reason for the beginning, he's the reason for the middle, and he's the reason for the end. I mean, nothing would happen in that movie without Jor-El. But we're not even allowed to know who Jor-El is other than, well, he doesn't look like the Marlon Brando Jor-El, so he's different, I guess. And the same thing with Zod. We don't get a chance to know Zod. These are just characters that are used like you would in a fanfic. Well, you know who Zod is. Everybody knows General Zod. So we're going to throw General Zod in. And y- you know who Lois Lane is. So we don't have to do any characterization for her because she's Lois Lane. So let's throw Lois Lane in. Yeah. No. It doesn't work that way. You have to explain to us who your Superman is. This is the big difference for me between the successful, and I really do feel it was successful, um, Tim Burton Batman of the 80s, because, well, for most of us, we grew up with the Adam West Batman. Some of us had the comic book Batman, but Tim Burton had decided that he was going to do his own Batman. And so we are introduced to him. We get to know him. We get to understand why Bruce acts the way he does, why he behaves the way he does, we get to really know him. And so when it comes to the end of the film, we understand his motivations, we understand what he's doing, and his the pain he has that the jo- the pain and pleasure in the death of the Joker at the end of the first movie. Because he wanted to save him. He tried to save him. Because that's what that Batman would do. And we see that throughout the story. We see him wanting to help people. We see him using, for the most part, with the one exception of the machine guns on the Batmobile, um, using non-lethal forms of attack throughout the film. But then again, I mean, he does shoot a wall with with the guns. So, you know, I guess still non-lethal because, you know, you can't really kill a wall, can you? Yeah. That is an ecumenical matter. (laughs) I think that's something we'd really have to like dig into. But, you know, he took the time to explain to us exactly who his Batman was, which is one of the reasons why Batman and Robin, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin didn't work because we got to know Tim Burton's Batman. We got to know him better in Batman Returns. And then without introducing us to a new Batman, they just kind of continued the story and give us something that wasn't quite the Batman that we knew. And it felt weird. And it didn't quite work. 
I mean, sure, we should have all assumed it was a different Batman because it was played by a different actor, either, you know. But, yeah, it felt strange. Because they didn't take time to explain. You know, Schumacher did not tell us, oh, here's my Batman. Here's what makes my Batman different. Here's what makes my Batman act and behave the way that he does. He just kind of went, well, you know who Batman was. We just had two of these movies. Let's just go on with it. And you can't rely on that. And that's why when I say, you know, picking the right language is very important. That's why. It's why Homecoming resonated with so many people. Because there had been a lot of Peter Parkers. I mean, you could really, you know, pick a peck of Peter Parkers right now. And there's just so many of them. But they took the time to let us know who their Peter Parker was. They didn't have to do that for Civil War because he's just in it for just a little bit. Just a little bit. There's just a hint of him. Just enough that all you have to know is, do you know who Spider-Man is? Look, Spider-Man. That's all you had to know for Civil War because he's not in it that much. Which is why his cameo in Civil War worked. The movie worked because we got to know who Peter Parker and Aunt May are. And we got to get into their world and meet his friends and understand his motivations so that his decisions make sense. And we know that he's nigh not either of the Peter Parkers that came before him. He's his own character, which again is something I don't think they really took the time to do in the amazing Spider-Man with, with that reboot thing that happened for two movies that shall we not speak of it again, please. At any rate, that's why words are important and kind of what I'm spending my time doing in the edit. So hopefully that's helpful. If you like this episode and you know somebody who you think would like it, please share it with them. That helps me out a lot. If the app that you're listening to me on lets you rate either this episode or this podcast, please do that. That tells the algorithms that they should share me to other people and that helps out a lot. If you could just, you know, give me a share on your social media, that would help out too. If you've got a couple bucks that you can throw my way, you can, depending on the app, either click the support button or in the show notes, you'll see a support on Anchor link. If you click that, you can donate at the $1, $5, or $10 levels. That money helps me to keep doing these podcasts and, well, helps me with everything that I do. So thank you if you could do that. If you can't, just share the show. That, that, that helps out a ton. Um, if you would like to send me a message... All you have to do is go to anchor.fm, download the app, follow Project Shadow, and you'll see a little button that says voice message. Click that. You can leave me up to a one-minute message. It can be a question, a comment, or a topic you'd like me to discuss, and keep it clean, and I might use it on the show. I've done that for some episodes, and I really enjoy doing that, so bear that in mind. If you want to support everything that I do, you can go to patreon.com slash cedorset and become a patron over there. I think that's everything. Yeah, there's a lot going on. You can follow me on social media. I'm C.E. Dorset on Twitter. If you want to link to that or any of my social media accounts, you can go to projectshadow.com and find all of them listed there. Until next time, have the fun. Bye.